Welcome to The Natural Selection, where this week's theme is islands. Hey guys, welcome back this week. Uh, we are The Natural Selection, definitely a class, maybe a family, and in uh, no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. Uh, Nick. Hello. And I'm also Nick. Uh, hello. So, uh, welcome back, guys. It's been a, it's been another week in Groundhog Day. Um, yeah, still all locked up in coronavirus. Although, Nick, you're a bit freer than us, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to go into work, but we're one person in a room at the time, at the moment. So it's a little weird. I feel like I've had jobs where that would be ideal for me. <laughs> it, to be, to be honest, I've got the best, I think, feel possible because the room that I ended up in is the skull collection. Cool. I know you like to collect skulls, so oh, that'll I keep you them. out of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, how you doing, Gnomes? Yeah, fine. Hanging in there. Groundhog Day is a perfect way to describe it, I think. Uh, days no longer have meaning. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I can't even remember when I showered. <laughs> I'm like, did I shower yesterday? Was yesterday the day with the with the pizza, or was that the day before? Yeah, I don't know anymore. Um, I just go, I don't smell. I don't think so. That's fine. Should we plow <laughs> on with the news? Let's get going. All right. Oh, welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're here with some news. Um. I know you guys like news. Uh, I have some news. It's quite dull, though. Are you guys ready for some dull news? I, am I ever? Well, the reason I picked it is because it was a cool animal. Um, it was a night parrot. I've never heard of that. Well, that's because you're not out at night. Um, <laughs> but they, they live in Australia, and it's quite unusual for birds to be nocturnal. I mean, we, we think of being uh, diurnal. Diurnal? Is that the right word? Yeah. For daytime? Uh, we think of being diurnal as the norm um, because we're awake then and loads of birds are and they're singing away. But, you know, nighttime is when most creatures like insects and mammals come out to play. But this bird, this parrot, is a night parrot. Uh, it's called uh, Pezoporus occidentalis and it lives in Australia. And what they were doing is they were looking at its brain to see if the, um, there was any changes caused by it being nocturnal. And interestingly, uh, they did find some things. Can you guess what happened to the parts of the brain which controlled sight? Atrophy. Got, got larger? Because if it wants to see at night time. Oh, we've got uh, differing opinions here. And uh, yeah, good news for Nick there is you're right on this one that it, it got smaller. So they'd obviously decided that uh, seeing was not the way to go forward. So um, they would not um, use as much of their eyesight to pick out fine details that perhaps that uh, part of the brain could be used or um, yeah, that brain capacity could be put to better use at nighttime, maybe smells or, or hearing or, or some such. Cool. That's really cool. Weird. Yeah. Cool. Um, do you guys have any exciting news? More exciting than uh, parrot brains? 
Um, yeah, I have pretty cool. Well, I like the powered brains. Um, but I've got a pretty cool piece of news um, about a snail. Um, so it's actually a snail that got a lot of um, attention um, in media and, and the internet a couple of years ago um, because it was a snail that curled um, anti-clockwise instead of clockwise, and garden snails uh, don't usually do that. So because of because of this, it couldn't mate with any other snails because um, not only was it shell the other way, but all of its organs um, and reproductive parts were the wrong way around. Um, so there was a a great citizen science movement to try and get this snail a partner and they able to get some other left-handed snails and they bred these to try and work out the genetic uh, basis for this and they found that it was probably just a sort of an anomaly that it was an accident because when they bred two left snails it did make a right um, and that the rest of the generations of snails were uh, clockwise in their spiral. But it was a very cute article though because it was like a lonely snail found love. <laughs> <laughs> That's like either a really nice, like, sort of like queer metaphor, like an LGBTQ metaphor, like finding love even when you're an outcast um, with someone who's also sort of like you, an outcast. Or it's like <laughs> a weird... When you screw the other way. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like a weird eugenic story from the scientist's perspective. Like, we're trying to breed these two strange ones together to make more strange ones who will also have lonely, horrible lives. But uh, they didn't. They turned out normal, so great. Um, depending on <laughs> yeah, how you read it, it can really be a different situation. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, it did seem a little bit more the latter. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it did shed a light, though. They, they're trying to look at this in order to um, work out maybe the mechanism behind symmetry in other animals, um, because most uh, organisms are asymmetrical inside, but snails also show their asymmetry outside, so it's a good way to kind of work on the cellular framework behind asymmetry. So, yeah, it's interesting. I hear they uh, did say that now he's found a uh, snail that he can mate with, that he's really coming out of his shell. So. God. Yeah. Mm. Don't, he did don't, die, don't approve it's... that, Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, the Nick, you would have loved the um, actual article title. And this is the one that they published in the paper um, in Biology Letters. Internet celebrity reflects on origin of rare mirror image snails. On rare mirror image snail, snails. <laughs> Um, I do know that mirror imaging is more common in snails than other animals. So, because it can happen in humans where you don't really know, it's just that all of your insides are switched over. Uh, so your heart is on the other side. And this can cause problems when they go to operate you and it's not where it's meant to be. But yeah, apparently it's actually a lot more common in snails than other animals and they don't understand why. So there's a lot of study into snails and that sort of reversal of um, mirroring, I suppose, um, and why it arises. Yeah, yeah, this is something that the article did uh, touch on a little bit. In this, um, in this particular species, the garden snail, they didn't, they generally were only one type of spiral, but others kind of revert between the two quite often. So, so Naomi, that was nice news. Um, I hear you have some awful news for us as well. Um, yes, yeah. So uh, this article that I found in in on sciencenews.org um reads more murder hornets are turning up. 
and here's what you need to know. Um, so basically, there's more occurrences of these giant Asian hornets uh, that are turning up in America on the Pacific Northwest. Um, they're an invasive species, so they're quite, and the reason they're called murder hornets, um, which is quite a dramatic name, but they um, kill honeybees. Um, so I think this can be quite damaging for honeybee populations if they do take further hold um, in the U.S. So there have been some uh, previous cases where they've been brought, uh, where they've been found um, in the U.S., but um, this is kind of the first time there's property surviving winter. So it's a bit worrying. Are These are the ones that the bees heat up and kill that way they like wheel their little bodies and surround them and like warm them up to like 100 degrees you don't use that temperature in the uk um to um something high in celsius 40 40 in celsius and then kill the hornets that way is that these are the same ones oh potentially yeah it sounds like yeah it, um they are so the asian honeybee has evolved to combat the Asian hornet, so that's what it will do. It will surround them and vibrate to raise the temperature and kill them. But the um, the honeybees that exist in America don't have this trick, so that's why the the hornets are able to wreak havoc. Mm, that makes sense. Also, there's like a, a very big size discrepancy as well. It's quite scary looking at the giant hornet compared I to a normal the, honeybee. When the first giant Asian hornet came to America and found a American honeybee hive, it was like, cool. Yeah. Get Because it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not hot. They don't get hot. Okay, never mind. Sorry, it was bad. That was a bad one. You can never, ever, ever judge anything I say again. <laughs> mm, that's my one for the month. <laughs> um, cool. Um, and uh, yeah, that is, you're right, horrific, terrifying news. So Nick, you have a bit of news you want to talk about? Yeah, this is um, not general interest news. This is pretty niche news. Um, but we are three taxonomists, and that's the that's how we build this, <laughs> this podcast. So I will share this niche taxonomy news. There, for many years, um, we've followed, for 250 years, actually, about, we've followed the same rules for naming things. Um, that were set out by Linnaeus. And just this week, uh, a new way of naming things has been published, codified and published. The Philo code is published this week, um, wow. which is something we learned about in our master's a couple of mm. years ago. And um, something that like seemed like a massive project that would maybe keep being worked on for many, many years. But it's done. It's published and it's ready to be used, although it's pretty controversial. So I'm not sure if it's going to go straight into use or if people are going to have to sort of wrangle with it for a while. But it's really exciting to have a new set of rules like that. Yeah, it's not like taxonomy to be controversial. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Nick, I believe there's something you wanted to talk about as well before we move on. Yeah, there is. Um, this week has, the last couple of weeks have been pretty intense for my American, you know, my American compatriots. Um, and it's actually spread out across the world. The Black Lives Matter movement is like really taking, I think, a global, well, it's becoming a global forefront of everyone's mind right now, which I think is really important. And I just wanted to take a moment to say, like, we're a nature podcast and we're run by three white people right now, but, um, we also like 
I want to make a little bit of space to acknowledge the movement and say that it's really important to figure out where, both in America and abroad, these like white systems of power and institutions are perpetuating the exploitation, oppression, and genocide of Black and Indigenous people across the world. And one way of doing that is by educating oneself to try to figure out the history of that, of how, what sort of was going on and what one can do about it. Um, and to that end, I wanted to suggest a couple of books and like different resources to maybe read if you're interested in nature and in about race, uh, contemporary race. And one of them is called, um, it's by the author's last name is Dungy, D-U-N-G-Y, and it's called Black Nature. Uh, and it's basically like a compilation of 400 years of black poetry about nature, um, which I think is a really like unknown and unreally studied or read world of um literature which i think is cool because it is like a way of connecting both like narrative and culture and community and the natural world which is something that i think we do in our own ways um and then the other thing that is sort of more directly related to what we do is the hashtag the trending hashtag on twitter birding while black um which i think is like a really cool thing to check out if you're on, on twitter to like read through that hashtag and figure out sort of the experience of black people in trying to experience nature now in the 21st century is pretty fraught with um, aggressive and racist encounters. Um, so maybe reading about that might help in some way. Anyway, that's all. It's not really news, but it's um, on my mind and I think on all of our minds. So I wanted to bring that up. Thank you so much for sharing those resources. And um, we can put links to all the things you mentioned as well, the description of this. Cool. Um, I think as well it's uh, worth noting that a lot of people assume that science is without bias in that sense that science is held up as this, um, this this sort of fact or this governing voice which has not been curated or has come with its own cultural biases. Yeah, I mean, even especially in our field, that idea of uh, Linnaeus, I mean, in Linnaeus, he used to categorize humans by race as if they were different and would write descriptions of um, people's personalities. And this is a book that we still reference as, as scientists um, and use as a, as a reference piece. And the amount of times you read things like discovered in 1804 by this gentleman, um, when in fact we know it wasn't discovered by them. Uh, people in the local area had been using it for thousands of years. The language of science has been used to silence groups for hundreds, if yeah, for hundreds of years. So it's uh, it's worth noting that yeah, that our field of study is definitely complicit in that. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that, Nick. That's uh, yeah, that was amazing and needs to be said, I think. So I guess there's not a lot else to say, but other than really get on with the show. So we'll be returning after this short break. Welcome to our discussion this week. Uh, this week's theme is islands. So this is an exciting. I'm 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 from an island. I'm on an island. Imagine that. Uh, Name. You're also from and on an island. Uh, mm-hmm. Nick, you're not from an island or on an island. So that's true. But <laughs> later, I'll I'll I'm going to qualify that. So, but I'll wait for the discussion. Okay, I like a qualification. So islands, eh? They're fun. Mm. yeah pretty pretty out there um so what would you guys say an island is 
Rock mm. in the water. Rock in the water. Well, that's a that's a fine definition, sir. I don't want to I don't want to get in the way. <laughs> Who am I to define English words? I'm not an English worder. But I put it to you, sir, that there's another type of island. Have you guys ever heard of sky islands? Vaguely. Now the problem yeah. is the problem with sky islands is they're not nearly as cool as they sound. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, they sort of do a really nice impression of a floating land, a bit like the movie Avatar, um, but cooler. Um, but uh, Skylands are actually something else. So they are mountains. So there is a thing with mountains that you often think of mountains as being part of a range, which they often are. Things like the Himalayas is a big mountain range. But there is a measure of mountains, which is called its prominence. And this is the measure of the independence of a summit. Uh, apparently, they're quite popular with mountaineers for the simple reason that they're the biggest thing in the area. So what it means is uh, it's a big mountain surrounded by a low by low land. That would be something with a large prominence. And this can create something called sky islands because there are certain creatures that can only live above a certain altitude. So... Uh, if they can't live below that altitude, they're sort of isolated on this mountain. And it can lead to quite amazing endemism where there's sort of evolution and things that grow there because it can't spread to the next nearest mountain or get an invasive species from that next nearest mountain if it's too far away. One mountain I was looking at in particular was Mount Kinabalu, which is the 20th most prominent mountain in the world. And it's on Borneo. It's in the Malaysian part of Borneo. But it is the largest mountain between the Himalayas and the island of New Guinea. Because of that, it creates a sky island and has all these most, uh, absolutely amazing endemism that you can go up there and find with the insects and the plants and the other animals that live there. Another way that sky islands can be formed is if they're surrounded by a desert, for example. Um, and where I grew up, I'm not on a sky island, but I can see one from my house. Um, there's a big mountain with pine forest, and then all around it is low desert for like hundreds of miles. So I'm That's not from cool. island. But it's a sky island. Ooh. It's the Snorren Sky Island. You're from a sky island. I'm not from a sky island, but I'm close uh-huh. to one. I can see one from my house. It's like if I were living in... So a... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's Muskai Island. Um, it's quite an impressive one. If you look up Mount uh, Kinabalu, you can actually see how much bigger it is than than anything else. Um, and the research I was looking at was by people from the Netherlands, which I can only assume went there out of sheer jealousy of the height of the land. <laughs> Just come from the Netherlands, I can confirm that the entire country is completely flat. <laughs> Um, maybe they'd never had a nosebleed before, but like, this is, this is probably the easiest way. Uh, that's mm. my it's a little gentle ribbing for the Dutch there. They've had it too easy for too long. It's so, true. It's true. Take that. <laughs> um, so, uh, Gnomes, you got any interesting, uh, tidbits about, uh, about the islands? Yeah. Um, something that I thought about, um, with islands was, 
how important islands and the study of species on islands has been to evolution, and particularly to the theory of natural selection. Uh, both Darwin and Wallace were influenced by the species that they found on islands. Um, so for Darwin, it was the finches and the Galapagos. Um, so there are about 26 species of finches, which are pass around birds, um, and they have very markedly different beaks. Um, and his observation of this, these different species um, helped him form the theories of natural selection. So I thought that was a, a cool way to bring in the namesake of our podcast. Yeah, yeah. That's our name. Good on <laughs> that. It's like when a movie says its name. I get really excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm breaking the fourth wall. I'm looking at the screen. <laughs> We're always looking at the screen, Naomi. <laughs> yeah. We're recording this on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> Don't break the illusion, Nick. Um, but yeah, so I thought that that was cool. Um, but yeah, recently there's been um, some pretty interesting developments in looking at the genetics of these finches as well. But one I found actually talked about how this hybridization is still going on between some species of these finches might highlight how perhaps if hybridization happened as they were evolving as well and the like gene flow between these species was important. Do you know uh, my favourite fact about Darwin is that he managed to get on the money in England. Uh, we popped him on the money. Uh, I think he was on tenors. I can't remember exactly. I think they, he's gone now. Do you know what bird they put next to him on the £10 note? Pigeon? Not far off. It was a hummingbird, which he never wrote about. Okay, then. <laughs> so, yes, essentially being on the money for his work with birds. They just picked another bird. <laughs> but, yeah, that's cool. Have you guys heard of the honey creepers as well? Oh, yes, yeah. They're another example of adaptive radiation, aren't they? Yeah, so, again, on Einstein, they're from Hawaii. They're quite fun. Um mm. But yeah, they did a very similar thing to the finches. I think they even created more species. Um, but they're they're very colourful with all sorts of uh, an array of beaks that became specialised in hunting different things on the Hawaiian islands. So that was quite fun. Cool. Hawaii also has quite a lot of um, endemism as well, doesn't it? Um, of different types of species because it's been isolated for so long, right? Or yeah, it's the so most isolated from the mainland. It's the most isolated island chain in the world, which makes it amazing because when you think of it, you think of lush uh, tropical rainforests and these crazy species. So you're like, well, how on earth did these species get here? Because other islands, things like um, England uh, or Ireland, used to be part of a landmass that separated. So it was able to carry things across with it. Um, it also didn't separate that far. So things are able to sort of migrate between the two but hawaii appeared in the middle of the ocean because it comes from a sort of volcanic ca- uh, conveyor belt uh, that um yeah creates the islands and then they move further northwest uh, away from the volcanic hotspot and eventually become weathered down into um yeah into nothing but uh so how did they get there so do you guys know how species got there i'm not sure i i guess maybe picking off from something that you were saying there that they like came from islands that used to be closer to the mainland as they kind of grew into the sea they moved on to new islands but i'm not sure or maybe like sea rafts i don't know sea rafts is an option so a lot of plants might have been carried that way um the birds is fairly obvious how birds would get there because (laughs) birds can fly um yeah with sea animals the whales that migrate there again uh, it's pretty obvious but things like a spider how on earth would a spider get there but the truth is it just blew in on the wind 
Like it literally got caught in a yeah, they got caught in a gust of wind and got taken across the sea and happened to land on this tiny speck in the largest ocean on Earth, thousands of miles away, which meant that colonizing Hawaii was super difficult. Can we just take a quick moment to appreciate that, like, if that happened, then there must be so many spiders in the wind right now all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) I like that idea. that kind of gives me, yeah, that kind of freaks me out a little, but, you know, spiders it's okay, gotta... they're way up there. They're way up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there are um, some spiders that use that as a mechanism for dispersal, right? They, like, have little, like, webby sort of parachute things and use it to carry the wind. Uh, yeah, they, they can do. So they're probably quite good at colonizing these islands. Uh, they could also piggyback on, on birds or something like that. It meant that getting there was exceptionally hard. So for the colonization of the islands, up until humans arrived, the rate of a new species colonizing was once every hundred thousand years. So it was so difficult for species to get there. Only one in every hundred thousand years would actually manage to land on Hawaii and colonize and spread out. The problem is, is since humans have arrived, Travel there has become a lot easier because you can piggyback on our rafts and things and we bring species with us deliberately. Um, and now the colonization rate has increased by over two million times, which means that before humans arrived, a species arrived every hundred thousand years. Now there's one invasive species arrives every 20 days on average. Wow. Yeah. Holy crap. And this is having huge impacts so we often think of a species there are some quite charismatic ones like a chameleon chameleons escape from pet stores they think in the 70s and now they roam the hawaiian forest with no predators um eating all the endemic insects so this uh, led to over 500 native species they know have gone extinct the snails that live there are right on the cusp um because we bring in snails on our boots and things the state of extinction in um in Hawaii is, is dreadful, really. Wow. Oh crap. Yeah, I suppose um islands do suffer a lot from like invasive species in particular because the end- endemics, if they've evolved in a way that they're not used to a certain kind of predator, um they'll just be like easy prey effectively for. Um, I know we've discussed it a little bit before, but yeah, it's it's quite sad. Um, are there is there like any attempt to try and help these the native species? I assume there is. There's huge work being done by know, at least the University of Hawaii, but other groups as well to try and protect uh, what is quite a unique environment, um, especially in what is the richest country on earth. But it's fighting a losing battle. Um, essentially, yeah, they started to fight when they were already surrounded. So. Damage has been done, and it was sort of the first islands where it's being studied and checked in this way to see how bad it could be. And yeah, the the effect on invertebrate life has been devastating. Yeah, uh, wow. There are projects being done to help the uh, uh, endemic species of Hawaii, and a lot of research is being done on the effects that the invasive species are having. But the problem is they started once they realized they were in a losing position, that it was only noticed because it was so terrible. 
So trying to fight back is definitely an uphill battle, but there are people who are trying to work on it. Okay, cool. It's good to hear. And it sounds like as well, a lot of the species that were being affected aren't necessarily ones that are hugely charismatic. So and like if you're talking about that's a lot of the invertebrates, it can be it can kind of take some time for people to kind of become aware that those things are being lost and kind of to get that like popular um, support true. behind it. Um, I also have an example of an invasive species affecting island endemics. It, in a sad way, it's kind of a funny example, but um, this is um, called Lyle's wren or Stevens Island wren, a small flightless passerine bird. So it's like a small songbird somewhere I'd say between maybe a robin finch kind of size. It was once found throughout New Zealand, but then its last refuge became Stevens Island, which is in the Cook Strait. Um, and it's often claimed that this species was driven extinct by a single creature, um, a lighthouse keeper's cat named Tibbles. Oh my God. Yeah. One animal. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but I think in yeah, fact, evil, it, it probably- Tibbles. <laughs> I think it was probably a lot of feral cats that were affecting it because it was a, a flightless um, small bird. So um, these introduced cats had a had a field day, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, this was about in the uh, late 1800s. What a monster. New Zealand is, as you say correctly, known as an island. Um, it's two islands, actually, or many islands, really, but two main islands. Um, and it's a great example of how islands can sort of be a unique biome, because when um, when Europeans got there, there were no native large mammals. There was only bats, wasn't there? Um, there is now because we bought them and this creates huge problems for the native population because uh, they have some amazing animals there. There's some amazing insects and invertebrates, including the velvet worm, which I mentioned last week, a sort of great survivor uh, from near Cambrian times. But they also have some amazing creatures uh, like land parrots. Have you seen their flightless parrots? Yes. Yeah. The, the kakapo. Yes. Yeah, they're like bright green and just waddle about and they don't uh, they never evolved fear. Uh, they also have the world's only mountain parrot, which is quite fun. Cool. Kakapow. Mountain parrot. Um. <laughs> <laughs> These are just totally. We also had what night parrot earlier. Yeah, I'm obsessed with parrots today, apparently. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> Did you just oh, say that? Oh, no. Yeah, I said that. No. <laughs> um, well, I don't have any any more information about New Zealand, but another another bird um, that also didn't evolve fear because it was on an island without any predators was the dodo. Yeah, um, dodos. Yes. Um, and it, this is also um, an example of something that's really interesting that happens on islands as well, which is um, island gigantism. I suppose you wouldn't necessarily think of a dodo being particularly giant, but um, compared to what it had evolved from, which was like pigeon-sized birds, I mean, it is um, quite a bit bigger. And it was flightless as well, which is, is something that um, can often happen to larger birds on islands, like the, the kakapo. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting, um, this sort of adaptation to lack of predators. It shows you like the expenses that is put into these things, like flight is, is quite an expensive strategy. So you know, you can um, evolve to not have it if you don't need it. Same with fear, like you talked about, um, that if you don't need you don't need it, you can get rid of it. But it, I suppose it can be costly when the circumstances change. 
I like the idea you're talking about island giganticism because there's also island dwarfism. And one of my favorite examples of that is that you guys know the Komodo dragon? Yes. Yeah. A massive lizard. So you'd think it would be like island giganticism. And for the longest time, they assume because it's the biggest uh, uh, lizard in the world. So it must be an island giant. It lives on islands. It's giant, right? Um, that was until they <laughs> found a fossil in Australia, uh, which was a very close relative of it that was actually bigger. So then some scientists suggested, well, maybe it's an example of island dwarfism, which led us to the unique position where the largest lizard on Earth uh, was being put forward as an example of island dwarfism. Wow. Wow. I love that. That's really cool. Do you guys know the world's oldest island? Um, like that still exists? Yes. No. Do you know Naomi? Um, no. Ah, it's uh, it's Madagascar of uh, the film fame. Ah, yes, I've heard of that. <laughs> it has its own soundtrack, but um, yeah, it's it's separated from uh, it was the, uh, from Africa millions upon millions of years ago before mammals uh, had evolved, I think. Uh, so yeah, there's some crazy endemism there. Eighty percent of Madagascan species are endemic. Whoa. Wow. So, yeah, if you find a species in Madagascar, there's an 8 in 10 chance that it won't be found anywhere else on Earth. Hmm. Wow. Whoa. I wouldn't have thought that that was, would be so large, but I suppose because it has been separated for so long that it you know, would have such different um, species everywhere else. It also took humans a really long time to get there. Uh, interestingly. So uh, it's separated from Africa all those millions of years ago. Um, and it's not that far away from Africa when you look at it. Um, but the first humans to colonize it uh, actually came from Asia. Huh. They went the long way around. I think they arrived about 5,000 years ago, roughly the same time as people from Africa also arrived on the other side of the island. And that um, uh, ethnic diversity is very much present in uh, Madagascar. Um, whereas on the west of the island is uh, people of mostly of African origin and on the east of the island is people of Asian origin. Cool. Cool. But yeah, you get some amazing species like the chameleons, which are now invading Hawaii, uh, lemurs, which are very famous, the ai, which we mentioned, um, the baobab trees. Yeah, you get some mm. really cool stuff there. Cool. I would love to visit Madagascar, but not now. We're in a quarantine. No, it's for, for Boaten. <laughs> yeah. Very verboten. <laughs> hmm, I think there's also some cool. I think th- th- in that Planet Earth, Planet Earth series, there was not only some cool lemurs, but also some cool plants that had that were covered in spines um, that I have never seen anywhere else. Not that I have seen them there, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Cool. Cool. <laughs> um. I also realised that I mentioned a bit maybe island dwarfism, um, but Naomi, I believe you have some quite cool examples of that. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's there's some cool ones. Um, one actually is a species of human, um, Homo florentus, that inhabited the island of Flores, which is in Indonesia. Um, it would have been from about 
50,000 to 190,000 years ago um, that its range range is thought to have been found. Um, and it displayed uh, um, dwarfism on these islands where it was found. Uh, so it's been nicknamed Hobbit. Hmm. Hmm. Or Flores, Cute. man. Yeah. Um, but there, there's other examples um, from different islands. Uh, there's dwarf mammoths, um, which is pretty cool. Um, some of those were studied by Dorothy, Dorothea Bate. Uh, we talked about her, Nick talked about her a little bit last week. Um, she discovered some fossil um, hippos, some dwarf hippos and some dwarf mammoths um, from Crete um, and areas around there. But yeah, what a queen. It's, it's a cool, yep. Yeah, it's a really cool um, idea um, that things get smaller, large things get smaller. Um, and then gigantism being being the opposite. But yeah, that um, small things get bigger. It's a cool idea. Apparently, um, researchers across the vertebrate spectrum from birds and reptiles to mammals have been trying to figure out what exactly the patterns are for whether something is going to go big or go small on an island. Um, but a, a new study just came out a couple of weeks ago that basically says, well, it seems like most things follow the same pattern, except when they don't, which is a lot of the time, we think. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the enigma continues. Classic biology. A, yeah, I was going to say that is the most biological paper ever written. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, though. I suppose, though, it is something that's hard to study as well, because like even though we've named quite a few like in terms of the number of species that exist there probably aren't that many studyable examples where you can get like you know data from um and explain these different correlations i oh my the whole time you guys have been talking i've been wondering whether there's an island where some things get big and some things get small and they just met in the middle huh Hmm. Hmm. like giant pigeons and tiny hippos Ooh, yeah. Hmm. Well, it's well. I don't have that. no. This is no longer about island, but bear with me. <laughs> One might say that our idea of normal is very relative, um, and that what we think of as like big or small in the grand scheme of things is like smaller, but like time dwarfism or time gigantism. For example, when there was a lot more oxygen in the atmosphere. And things like dragonflies were huge. <laughs> but there were big dragonflies. Like, there were big dragonflies, and there were also tiny horses. Like the ancestor, the, the Hierocotherium, the like super old ancestor horse, was super small. It was like two feet long. Um, I think that's cool. That things we think of now that are like, a horse is this big, is like, well, it hasn't always been. It used to be a child, so it's much smaller. Once it was a baby. I actually was looking up um, giant swans uh, the last day, and the example that they give on the Wikipedia page for showing the height of a giant swan, which sort of feeds into your things meeting in the middle, is a giant swan compared to a dwarf mammoth, um, and they're roughly about the same size. Blimey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, the swan is taller, but its neck, you know. It's taking up a lot of that height above the mammoth. Yeah, it's the, the oh, it's the pygmy elephant. Sorry, not a mammoth. There were also, in speaking of Madagascar, um, no longer there but extinct, uh, pygmy hippos that lived on Madagascar. 
um, they were about a third of the size of a normal hippo, or what we think of now as a normal hippo. Cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think I've ever they... seen a hippo. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I think that means we're pretty much out of island facts. Uh, it's been a good old chat. Um, we're going to be back next week, though. Next week, we're going to be talking about migration, which is quite exciting. Um, but until then, I suppose it's, uh, it's goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Oh, sorry, I just looked at pygmy hippos and they're so cute and wrinkly.